Well, last time in Hebrews chapter 8, we looked at the prophecy quoted from Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where God said he would establish a new covenant with his people. He would completely change the rules by which people would have a relationship with him. And then some 600 years after that promise was made through the prophet Jeremiah, God fulfilled it. Through Jesus Christ, God established a new covenant with us. He has made possible for us a new kind of relationship with him. And this new covenant is based on the faithfulness of God rather than the faithfulness of us. And that makes all of the difference, doesn't it? Because the old covenant, which is what the Ten Commandments are a part of, is really good at pointing out our sinfulness, showing us how far away we are from God's holiness and how badly we need a Savior. But the Old Covenant has no power to help us overcome our sin and make us holy to provide us a Savior and salvation. The New Covenant does. It's good to know where we came from. It helps us better understand and appreciate where we are. And in order to better appreciate and understand what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the author of the letter of Hebrews, has been reminding his readers where they came from, comparing and contrasting the old and the new throughout this letter. Well, in the author's remarks in Hebrews chapter 8, he has pointed us back to the giving of the old covenant in the book of Exodus. And now in Hebrews chapter 9, he points us back to Exodus again, where God gave detailed instructions to Moses about the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the old covenant was a movable dwelling place for God among the people of Israel while they traveled in the desert wilderness of Sinai. It was the center of their worship and where God met with them. We're going to be talking about the objects of the tabernacle today, and I have a handout for you, just like back in the old days of school, and I need a couple of helpers today to pass these out. So, maybe a helper on this side and a helper on the other side. While they're passing that out, the, the question maybe comes up in your mind, why are we looking at these things? Why does the author of Hebrews mention them? Why should we care anything about the old covenant since it has been superseded by the new covenant? Well, as mentioned before in Hebrews 8.5, and again here in Hebrews 9.9, the tabernacle and the activities carried out there were a copy, a shadow, an illustration, a preparation, a parable of the real sanctuary in heaven and the work of Jesus for us. We learn stuff about Jesus in the things of the old covenant. That's why we're looking at this stuff. So we're in Hebrews chapter 9, Beginning in verse 1, so if you have your Bible, you can make your way over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Don't spend all of your time reading over that sheet of paper. We'll, we'll cover it in detail, 
Make your way over to Hebrews chapter 9. See, this is why I didn't pass it out even earlier, because you'd have been doing that instead of worshiping this morning. But before we dive in, I want to make sure that you understand that the author is talking in this section about the tabernacle in the days of Moses when the Israelites were traveling through the desert wilderness on their way from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. This is not the temple in Jerusalem, which was constructed some 400 years later by David's son Solomon. The tabernacle was initiated and designed by God and executed by Moses. The temple in Jerusalem was an accommodation by God. He did not initiate it. David did. God allowed it and accepted it, but he didn't need it or ask for it. And if you're interested to learn about that, you can take a look at 2 Samuel 7. So let's begin in verse 1 of Hebrews 9. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The first covenant, the old covenant, had a very exact and detailed set of regulations established by God by which the people were to carry out their worship of him, including an earthly sanctuary, it says here, where this worship was to take place. So verse 2 says, A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. I have uh, some images for us here, too, to help us visualize these things. This tabernacle, a tent, was a temporary movable dwelling that the Israelite people took with them as they traveled through the desert wilderness. The tabernacle is described in Exodus chapter 26, verses 1 through 37. The purpose of the tabernacle is stated by the Lord himself in Exodus 25, 8. It says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, God speaking, and I will dwell among them. The Lord lived in the same kind of dwelling that his people did, a tent. And this picture of God dwelling with his people in a tent, it's brought out in an interesting way in the opening words of the Gospel of John. In John 1.14, it says, The word referring to Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The words translated, he made his dwelling among us, literally means he pitched his tent or his tabernacle among us. God became human and pitched his tent among us. He lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now the first room or the frontmost room of the tabernacle was called the holy place. This room represented the royal chamber of their king, the Lord. It was about 15 feet wide, 30 feet deep, and 15 feet high. The lampstand was located in this first frontmost room of the tabernacle, the holy place. This seven-branched lampstand is described in Exodus 25, 
verses 31 through 39. The lampstand was made of pure gold. The Hebrew word that is translated into English as lampstand is menorah. Now you know where that word comes from, because I'm sure a lot of you goes, where does menorah? It just means lampstand. The design of the lampstand was patterned after an almond tree. With branches, buds, blossoms, flower cups, it had three branches on one side, three on the other, each coming off of a main trunk. There was a lamp on the trunk and each of the six branches for a total of seven lamps. And the lamps were to be kept burning continually, representing the eternal light and glory of God shining upon them and reflecting back to him from their lives. The table with the bread of the presence was also in this first room of the tabernacle, the holy place. This table is described in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. It was made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. It was about three feet long, a foot and a half wide, and two and a half feet high. The 12 loaves of the bread of the presence, also called the show bread, were placed on the table. The 12 Loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it reminded them that they were always in the presence of God before his watchful and protective gaze. New loaves of bread were put on the table every Sabbath by the priests. And the old bread was only to be eaten by the priests. And if you remember the story of David, when he was running from Saul, there was an exception made for David Uh, by the priests uh, one time. But something to notice is that all of the things that represent the people in some way in the tabernacle were perishable or of an obvious temporary nature. And all of the things that represented the Lord in some way were made of what would be considered imperishable materials. So for example, the people, they are represented by the bread which was perishable, while the table upon which the bread sat was of pure gold. Now, verse 3 of Hebrews 9 continues to mention these various objects. It says, Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So behind what was referred to here as the second curtain was the backmost room of the tabernacle called the most holy place. It's also called the holy of holies. This room was cube-shaped about 15 feet wide, 15 feet deep, and 15 feet high. This is where the presence of God dwelt. It was never to be entered by anyone for any reason except the high priest, and he could only enter that place once a year on the Day of Atonement following a very particular and detailed set of procedures. This second curtain that is mentioned here, which separates the most holy place from the holy place, it's the curtain 
in the temple that will be torn open from top to bottom on the day Jesus is crucified. You might remember that. The tearing open of this curtain on that day when Jesus is crucified, it will signify that the way has now been opened into the very presence of God for us by the sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest. This ark, it says it contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So it mentions here that the incense altar, it sounds like it's inside of this most holy place in the wording here, but it was actually, it's generally agreed, was located in the front most room, the most, or not the most holy place, the holy place. So it was in this first chamber. And the altar of incense is described in Exodus 30, the first 10 verses there. The incense altar was made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold. It was about a foot and a half long and wide and stood about three feet high. And it had a special fragrant incense continually burning on it, which represented the prayers of the people rising up to the Lord. This Ark of the Covenant was the only thing in the backmost room, the most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant is described in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. It was a chest made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold, inside and out, and it was about four feet long, about two feet wide, and two feet high. Its lid, called the atonement cover, or the mercy seat, was made of pure gold, and it had a cherub on each side, facing one another with outstretched wings over the cover. The ark symbolized the throne of God, the great king who dwelt among his people. And uh, as I've mentioned once before, this is the ark in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. For some of you going, is that the, yeah, this is it. And it's, you know, in some warehouse at the Smithsonian, right? Not really. We don't know where the ark is anymore. Inside of the ark of the covenant were three things. There was a gold jar of manna. Exodus 16, 31 through 35 describes Moses giving Aaron instructions to collect some of the manna that they ate while in the desert wilderness and putting it in a jar to be kept for the generations to come as a symbol and a reminder of God's gracious provision for the needs of his people. Aaron's staff that had budded was also in the ark. And Numbers 17, 1 through 11, tells the story behind the staff that had budded. We're not going to go into that story today, but it served as a reminder that God had chose Aaron and his lineage to serve as priests and no one else. The third thing in 
the ark were the stone tablets of the covenant. These had the Ten Commandments written on them. They were placed inside the ark and symbolized the covenant between God and his people. Now it says here at the end, it says, Above the ark were the cherubim and the of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. There's much more that could be said about these various items of the tabernacle and symbolism attached to them. The author spends no time discussing these things. We've spent a little bit of time talking about them because we aren't Jewish Christians of the first century, which means most of us have very little knowledge of these things. Uh, but we will also move on as he is in the letter here. The various elements and activities at the tabernacle served as a living object lesson for the people, teaching and showing them what was required to have holy God dwelling among them. It showed them what holy means, the huge chasm that existed between holy God and sinful humanity. It showed the price that sin exacts from people's lives and what is required to cover it. It pointed toward the true tabernacle of God that would come one day, our Jesus Christ. Now, a final thought before moving on. We who are believers in Christ are now the temple the sanctuary, the tabernacle of God. Think about that. 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You yourselves are God's temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will be with them and walk among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Colossians 1.26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The place where God now dwells with his people is not a special tabernacle tent, but them. We are his dwelling place, his tabernacle, his temple. See, in a, in a general sense, God is not confined to any one place since he transcends our physical world. But there was a unique dwelling that he had among his people in the days of Moses, which was the tabernacle tent, and that dwelling now is us. Verse 6, it says, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The common priests served every day at the tabernacle, entering into that frontmost room, the holy place, burning incense in the morning and evening, keeping the lamps burning, exchanging the bread of the presence, 
every Sabbath and offering the sacrifices and other offerings at the bronze altar in the tabernacle courtyard. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter that most holy place, the inner room of the tabernacle, to offer atonement for his sins and the sins of all of the people, carefully following a required set of procedures. That day was the most sacred and solemn day of the year for the Israelite people. And it all communicated how separate God was from them, how holy he was, how sinful they were, and all that was required to bridge that gap. Verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So in verse 8, it says, As long as the tabernacle of the old covenant was still standing and operating, the way into God's presence was not open to them. But as I mentioned a little bit earlier, on the day Jesus was crucified, that dividing curtain between the holy place and the most holy place was torn open By the supernatural act of God, it was torn from top to bottom, signifying that that way into the most holy place, the very presence of God, was now open to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, We can read about this in Mark chapter 15, for example, in verse 33. It says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud voice, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Back to Hebrews 9, verse 9. The Greek word translated into English as an illustration is the word parable. The ceremonies and sacrifices and washings and dietary restrictions and all of the other rituals and prohibitions and procedures of the old covenant, they were an illustration, a parable, a preparing us for the coming of Jesus Christ who would bring real salvation. As we've already said, these things, they help us to see our need, but they had no power to change our life, and Jesus would do that through the new covenant. So in verse 11, it says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not 
made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is a beautiful summary of what the author has been telling us over the last several chapters about the amazing ministry of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus entered the greater, perfect, true tabernacle of God. He entered the very presence of God in heaven. He went into the most holy place of heaven itself. It was not a copy or a shadow of the real thing. It was the real thing. Jesus did not enter by the blood of animals, but by his own blood, and his sacrifice was perfect, being so complete, so sufficient, that it would never need to be repeated. It was done once for all of time, rather than like the sacrifices of the Old Covenant that had to be repeated again and again, continually. The result obtained by Jesus for us is eternal redemption, it says. His people have been delivered from the guilt and the penalty of sin forever. So the great day of atonement was the day Jesus Christ was crucified some 2,000 years ago. On that day, the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. On that day, our great scapegoat, Jesus Christ, carried our sins away. On that day, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, entered the most holy place in heaven and stood before the great throne of God and offered the sacrifice of himself for our atonement. On that day, Jesus Christ obtained eternal redemption for us. And this salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished goes even further. We are not only saved from sin's penalty, we have been cleansed to be the dwelling place of God and set free to serve the living God as living sacrifices. See, we don't have to go through some elaborate ritual to try to rid ourselves of sin and pay for our guilt before God. Those are dead works, we're told. In Jesus Christ, we have been set free to joyfully give our life to the Lord in gratitude for what he has done for us. Romans 12, 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, we're not offering ourselves to make atonement for our sins. And as brutal as it may sound to hear, the sacrificing of ourself would be inadequate anyway. It would not be acceptable because we are not perfect. Jesus, the perfect human, gave his life for us. 
Instead, we are now to live our life as an act of worship to the Lord. We're not asked to die for Him. We are told to live for Him. We're to be a living sacrifice, and this is our true and proper worship. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you, our great high priest and the great sacrifice the Lamb of God. You have done it all, Jesus. You have been all for us. You are all in all for us. Lord, encourage your people today. Remind us today that you have done it all for us. We are now called to be living sacrifices as an act of gratitude and love for what you have done for us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.